Welcome to Hub History, where we go far beyond the Freedom Trail to share our favorite stories from the history of Boston, the hub of the universe. This is episode 140, 15 Blocks of Rage. Hi, I'm Jake. This week, I'm going to be talking about a 1967 riot that rocked Roxbury's Grove Hall neighborhood. For decades, it was generally referred to in the mainstream media as a race riot, or sometimes as the welfare riot. Well, a handful of articles and books by black authors called it the police riot. A group of mostly African-American women who led a group called Mothers for Adequate Welfare were staging a sit-in protest at a welfare office on Blue Hill Ave. When tensions escalated, the police stormed in and used force to remove the group. Onlookers were outraged by the violence and attempted to stop the police. The resulting riot spanned three nights in Roxbury, with arson, looting, and shots fired both by and at the police. And the scars it left behind took decades to heal. But before we talk about Grove Hall's 15 Blocks of Rage, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. My pick for the Boston Book Club this week is A People's History of the New Boston by Jim Vrabel. Published by the UMass Press in 2014, this volume applies the ethos of Howard Zinn's ever-popular People's History of the U.S. on a local scale, taking on Boston in the 20th century. Vrabel is a historian, a community activist, and a longtime city employee. His other works have tried to assemble a complete timeline of Boston from prehistory through today, but this one focuses on post-war Boston. Here's how the publisher describes it. Although Boston today is a vibrant and thriving city, it was anything but that in the years following World War II. By 1950, it had lost a quarter of its tax base over the previous 25 years, and during the 1950s, it would lose residents faster than any other major city in the country. Credit for the city's turnaround since that time is often given to a select group of people, all of them men, all of them white, and most of them well-off. In fact, a large group of community activists, many of them women, people of color, and not very well-off, were also responsible for creating the Boston so many enjoy today. This book provides a grassroots perspective on the tumultuous 1960s and 70s when residents of the city's neighborhoods engaged in an era of activism and protest unprecedented in Boston since the American Revolution. Using interviews with many of those activists, contemporary news accounts, and historical sources, Jim Vrabel describes the demonstrations, sit-ins, picket lines, boycotts, and contentious negotiations through which residents exerted their influence on the city that was being rebuilt around them. He includes case histories of the fights against urban renewal, highway construction, and airport expansion, four civil rights, school desegregation and welfare reform, and over Vietnam and busing. He also profiles a diverse group of activists from all over the city, including Ruth Batson, Anna DeFranzo, Mo Gillen, Mel King, Henry Lee, and Paula Oyola. Vrabel tallies the wins and losses of these neighborhood Davids as they took on the Goliaths of the time, including Boston's mayors. He shows how much of the legacy of that activism remains in Boston today. Now, I picked up this book at Brookline Booksmith about a year ago, and I'm just getting around to reading it now so I can include some of Vrabel's insights in this week's episode. If you haven't read this one yet either, I'll include a link to purchase the book in this week's show notes. And for our upcoming event this week, I'm highlighting the third annual Transcribathon at the Massachusetts Historical Society. The first Transcribathon was held in July of 2017 to mark John Quincy Adams' 250th birthday. 
Sarah Martin, the editor-in-chief of the Adams Papers for the MHS, describes the project of digitizing over 15,000 pages of John Quincy's diaries and how volunteers on the Transcribathon contributed to American historiography. John Quincy Adams is one of America's great statesmen. The oldest son of founders John and Abigail Adams, his distinguished career in public service spanned six decades and included roles as diplomat, secretary of state, president, and congressman. For 68 years, JQA kept a diary of his public and private experiences. The 51-volume diary comprises the longest continuous record of any American of the time and provides an unparalleled resource not only for scholars, the traditional audience for this type of publication, but for educators, students, and a general public interested in history. Building on a project completed more than a decade ago that digitized the entire JQA manuscript diary and created basic metadata for every date entry, the DJQA project will make Adam's diary truly accessible for the first time by presenting a verified and searchable transcription of each entry in the MHS website. Participatory engagement with transcription of a historical archive can be a powerful marketing tool, but adequate quality controls must be built into a project in order to yield a transcription that meets the standard of the documentary editing community. In the summer of 2017, the MHS attempted to bridge this divide when it held its first Transcribathon to commemorate JQA's birthday. Over the course of several hours, 30 participants transcribed nearly 80 pages of the diary. To provide some control, we asked each participant to start by transcribing the same short paragraph that contained many of JQA's quirks of handwriting. This gave us a qualitative baseline by which to review the transcriptions and make quick determinations about usability. Overall, approximately 90% of the transcriptions were incorporated into the project's transcription files. The Transcribathon also yielded a handful of volunteer transcribers, another way the DJQA project is trying to engage the public in its work. All transcriptions, however, will be verified before being published online, a vital step in the process, and one that is best done by project staff in order to maintain the standards of the Adams Papers edition as a whole. If you'd like to participate in this year's Transcribathon and help to digitize the full text of JQA's diary for people like me to search through and read online, check out this week's show notes for a link to register. The event will be held at the MHS on Saturday, July 13th from 10 a.m. to 3 p.m. Attendance is free and lunch will be provided. Thanks in advance for all you do to make the Adams Papers Online an even richer historical resource. Before I get into the 1967 protest and riot in Grove Hall, I want to take a moment to thank all of our Patreon supporters. Podcasts are a great medium because they've always been free to listen to. Unfortunately, they're not free to create. Along with the time we spend every week researching and writing a new episode, we spend money on our podcast feed host, our web host, and some online audio processing tools. Supporting us on Patreon for as little as $2 a month helps us cover the cost of creating Hub History. Plus, there are special rewards at the $2, $5, and $10 monthly levels. Or as we call them, the Amelia Earhart, Lewis Hayden, and Abigail Adams levels. Just go to patreon.com slash hubhistory, or visit hubhistory.com and click on the Support Us link. And now it's time for this week's main topic. The mid-to-late 1960s saw cities around the country rocked by so-called race riots, like Rochester, Philly, and Harlem in 1964, Watts in 1965, and Detroit in 1966. 
For a while, though, there was optimism that Boston would be spared. On June 3, 1967, that dream was dashed, when the Globe reported on a riot in Roxbury the night before. A silent sit-in protest against City of Boston welfare practices escalated into a five-block-wide, 11-hour riot in the Grove Hall section of Roxbury Friday night and early this morning. Under the headline, 15 Blocks of Rage, Fear, and Hurt, the evening edition went even further, saying, 15 blocks of guns and clubs and bloodstains. 15 blocks of shattered glass and whiskey bottles and beer cans and debris. 15 blocks of rage and fear and hurt and tension. 15 blocks of what racial strife really means. This is Blue Hill Avenue today, a Boston street which served as a battleground during an all-night riot. It never was a pretty street, but today, for 15 blocks, it's the dirtiest, ugliest street in America. By the late 1960s, the Grove Hall neighborhood, centered on the corner of Blue Hill Ave, Warren Street, and Washington, near the Roxbury-Dorchester line, was struggling. When Roxbury was still an independent town, the Grove Hall area had started out as an agricultural center, with many small farms and orchards. It was named after a grand estate, built by a wealthy merchant in 1800 on a hill overlooking today's Washington Street. The owner, Thomas Kilby Jones, named his house Grove Hall and the name stuck long after Jones was gone. By the early 1800s, Grove Hall was a crossroads, where roads connected Roxbury and Boston to Milton and Quincy. During the 19th century, the Grove Hall Manor House was used as a rural resort, and then an orthopedic hospital, and then a tuberculosis hospital. It burned down in 1898. In the meantime, Roxbury's 1868 annexation to the city of Boston kicked urban development in Grove Hall into overdrive. In 1872, the Highland Street Railway opened with its southern terminal in Grove Hall and the other end at Temple Place. Having access to mass transit into downtown Boston opened the neighborhood to middle- and working-class families who would commute into the city. The street grid was established around Warren Street by 1885, and along Blue Hill Ave by 1895, and each section was subdivided for building lots. At first, residents of the area were mostly old Yankee families, but they were soon followed by upwardly mobile Irish immigrants. In the decades to come, however, daily life in Grove Hall would be dominated by a different immigrant group. Jewish Americans began to settle in the area at the beginning of the 20th century, with a 1906 map showing a large synagogue on Blue Hill Ave. The Adath Jeshrun Synagogue was initially supported by about 140 families, but that had risen to over 1,300 by 1920, representing probably 6,000 people. By 1923, a second synagogue in the neighborhood drew about the same number of worshippers. A third opened in 1925, followed by a religious school. By the late 1930s or early 1940s, Grove Hall was considered a definitively Jewish neighborhood. It had a mix of conservative and reform congregations, mostly drawn from Eastern Europe. It had kosher butchers and groceries, and a mix of classes and incomes. All that would soon change, however. An article about Grove Hall, originally published by the Youth Violence Systems Project, reveals the growing fault lines in the neighborhood. There was a long-standing hostility between the Irish youth of nearby areas and the Jewish youth in the neighborhood. In the second half of 1943, violent attacks on Jewish youth increased from two or three reported incidents per month to eight in July, 11 in September, and many more incidents in October. Wallace Stegner commented in the Atlantic Monthly, 
Sometimes, fairly clearly, the violence was the kid stuff that the Boston mayor and the police commissioner called it. And sometimes it was semi-organized warfare between neighborhood gangs. But very often, it was a planned assault, preceded by the question, Are you a Jew? After the anti-Semitic violence in the fall of 1943, Protestant clergy organized an interfaith committee in the area for the purpose of promoting goodwill between all religious and racial groups and equal police protection for all groups. Seen against the backdrop of Nazi propaganda and violence against Jews, even before the full extent of the final solution in the Reich became public knowledge, these attacks put the entire community on edge. Perhaps presaging the white flight that many of Boston's neighborhoods would soon face, Grove Hall's Jewish residents began leaving the neighborhood in droves in the 1950s. This sudden migration was called Nexodus, as the YVSP article continues. In 1950, there were about 70,000 Jews in Roxbury, Dorchester, and Mattapan. This was still the largest Jewish community in New England, even though some families had moved to Brookline and Newton over the previous two decades. During the next 17 years, almost every Jewish institution in Roxbury and Dorchester either closed or moved. The initial post-war exodus to the suburbs of synagogue members and a significant proportion of key leaders led the Jewish schools and synagogues to consider moving. For example, by the early 1950s, half of the approximately 800 families of Mishkan Tefila lived in the suburbs and commuted back to Roxbury for religious services and Hebrew school. As key institutions such as the Hebrew Teachers College and four schools, along with several synagogues, moved or closed in the 1950s, this triggered an even larger movement to the suburbs. Gerald Gamm argues in his book Urban Exodus that racial change took place more rapidly in Jewish neighborhoods like Grove Hall than in Catholic neighborhoods because the synagogues were not deeply rooted in a geographic area like Catholic parishes. The members were not required to live within the local neighborhood, and the synagogue congregations could make autonomous decisions to change or leave. These factors probably predisposed Jewish residents to move when faced with some other issues, like real estate agents encouraging panic selling and blockbusting, discriminatory lending and insurance practices, increased crime and arson, and racial change in adjacent areas. By 1970, that exodus was almost complete. The exodus of Jewish residents accelerated a change in the racial makeup of the neighborhood that had begun decades earlier. The first African-American church in Upper Roxbury, St. Mark's Congregational, opened in a former Quaker meeting house in 1926. A growing black minority thrived around Grove Hall during this era, encouraged by city policies that reinforced the de facto segregation of redlining and blockbusting that prevented black families from buying homes in many other neighborhoods. As Grove Hall became known as a black neighborhood, city officials seemed more willing to write off income inequality, discrimination, and other social ills as simply inevitable. As a retrospective published by The Globe in 2017 put it, Old Boston was changing in many ways. With a new city hall under construction, a spate of downtown construction, and even faint intimations of a miracle in the offing at Fenway Park, things seemed to be looking up on many fronts. But on race, the city was stuck and not in a good place at all. Some neighborhoods were off-limits to black homeowners. Jobs were scarce. Schools were blatantly unequal in their offerings. The divisions that would become obvious to the world with the school integration crisis of 1974 and its long, ugly aftermath were smoldering largely out of view in 1967, a fire awaiting a match.
That match came in 1967. After the first night of rioting was over, the evening edition of the June 3rd Boston Globe could write, Mayor Collins termed the riot the worst manifestation of disrespect for the rights of others that this city has ever seen. And nobody in city government or the mainstream media questioned whether it was actually the police who had manifested that disrespect for the rights of others. The Bay State Banner, which is now one of the most august black newspapers in Boston, but then was barely two years old, carried an alternative version of the events that had led up to the riot. The next edition of the weekly paper ran a front-page headline that said, Police Riot in Grove Hall. Club-swinging police attacked spectators in Grove Hall following a nonviolent demonstration by the Mothers for Adequate Welfare last Friday. According to Mrs. Catherine Moore, a spokesman for the Mothers for Adequate Welfare and one of the demonstrators, the police never asked them to leave and never told them they were under arrest. Without prior warning, she said, a superintendent raised his hand and said, Get him. Beat him if you have to, but get him out of here. According to the demonstrators, police then attacked the crowd inside with their nightsticks, beating the women as well as the men. One of the women rushed to the window and shouted, They're beating your black sisters in here. Negro men who had paused outside then rushed to get into the building. They were met by a flying wedge of policemen who beat them back with their nightsticks. What happened next remains contentious, but before we get to that, who were the Mothers for Adequate Welfare, and why were they staging a protest at a government office at Grove Hall? In his book, A People's History of the New Boston, Jim Vrabel describes a city that was struggling in the 1960s. It had lost population in the preceding decades, and of the roughly 150,000 remaining residents, a quarter were living below the federal poverty line. Before President Reagan reduced welfare benefits and President Clinton basically did away with them, there were a number of federal programs meant to benefit low-income citizens, many of which had been implemented as part of President Lyndon Johnson's War on Poverty in the mid-60s. These federal programs were managed by the states, and Vrabel argues that they were mismanaged here in Massachusetts. He writes, Those unfortunate enough to qualify for assistance were doubly unfortunate because they found themselves entangled in what was undoubtedly the worst welfare system in the country although even calling it a system is a stretch. Massachusetts was the only state in the country in which each city and town was responsible for operating the four major programs that welfare comprised. Aid to families with dependent children, disability assistance, general relief, and old age assistance. The result, according to the Boston Globe, which published a series titled The State of Welfare, was an uneven river of local busybodies and red tape uncommon even for welfare, which is the land of red tape. In addition, welfare programs were structured to benefit only unmarried women with children, because the everyday sexism of that era assumed that a man should be the provider for his family. Thus, if a woman was in a relationship with a man, he should be providing and her benefits would be cut off. Former State Representative Byron Rushing, who was an organizer in Boston's African-American community in the 1960s, describes how this policy undermined trust on both sides. These were the days where welfare workers could, unannounced, come to your house. They could come at night to see if you were sleeping with somebody because you're supposed to be single. The system was complicated, expensive, and often demeaning and dehumanizing to those it was designed to help. A Globe series on the state of welfare concluded that the welfare program in Massachusetts is giving the poor a handout without giving them a hand. 
Finally, in 1964, a group of African-American welfare recipients decided that they wanted to try to fix the system they were trapped in. They formed a small core group of mostly black activists, with some white membership as well. Katrina Morse interviewed one of the group's early leaders, community organizer Paula Doris Werders, for the Grove Hall Memory Project. And so we formed this organization, and um, they gave it the name of uh, Mothers for Adequate Welfare. Acronyms were very big at that time, and that, that spelled MAUD. MAUD, so it was like a Southern-sounding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, it was one of the first welfare rights groups. There were a lot of them that sprang up in the 60s, and, and this one, I think, was written up in some academic journals, and you know, there's, there's some history of it around. Yeah. Doris Bland was the first president of MAW, and her early focus was on growing the group and making sure that women were able to access their benefits. To help with membership, the founders would go door-to-door in low-income neighborhoods, talking with women about the welfare system, handing out flyers, and inviting people to group meetings. However, by the spring of 1965, they were protesting to try to draw attention to inefficiency in the city welfare department. And the following year, they joined with other welfare rights groups in a nationwide protest. Jim Vrabel wrote about how the group came into their own with a seemingly simple discovery. None of us knew our rights, what we could and couldn't do, Bland said a few years later. We got a copy of the State Manual of Welfare, and all hell broke loose when we got a hold of that. Why did something as basic as a manual cause all hell to break loose? Because the group suddenly realized how they were supposed to be treated, the benefits they were being held back, and, as organizer Paula Doris Waters described, the unequal treatment that black women received. And then some people were starting, so some of those people were starting, who were friends of ours, were starting to tell us that, um, that some of the uh, welfare workers discriminated against the African-American recipients because they thought they didn't need all the things. There was apparently a list in the welfare manual that every family should have at least so many dishes and so many knives and forks and so many cups and, uh, you know, getting to change and getting for each of the beds and so on and so forth. And they would um, offer this to the white recipients because they felt like, oh, they were just down on their luck and they would get off pretty soon what are they just identified with the more most likely? And so that gave us a, 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 an issue. And um, then we got hold of a welfare manual um, through one of these friends. And we just took it to, uh, we actually took it to Harvard. <laughs> when somebody told us about a, a um, photocopy machine that was just there that anybody in the building could use. So we went to that building. We copied the entire manual on a weekend when nobody was copying. <laughs> and, and then we had it, you know, and, and we could help people advocate for themselves. And if that didn't work, we'd go with them. As the group grew, they started a buddy system, sending a MAW member to attend intake interviews and other meetings at local welfare offices, along with new recipients, to make sure that caseworkers didn't ignore or abuse them. Ma held a series of demonstrations in 1966 and 67 aimed at Boston Welfare Commissioner William Lally, Mayor Collins, State Attorney General Ed Brooke, and Governor John Volpe. They were warmly received by Volpe and Brooke, and at least tolerated by Collins and Lally, but nothing much seemed to change. There were some calls for increased benefits, 
Because even in 1967, rent in Boston was higher than welfare recipients could afford with their housing benefits. However, Vrabel describes how the group increasingly called for structural change. Most of Ma's demands were to improve the system itself. The group called for more and better daycare so women could go to work, for interviews with social workers to be conducted privately, and for publishing all the various rules and regulations in one clearly written document so recipients could understand what they could expect and what was expected of them. In order to try to force the welfare department to take them seriously, the group began staging sit-ins at welfare offices. The day after the riot on Blue Hill Ave, people were asking each other how it started. The morning edition of The Globe said that the trouble had actually started a week before. It began Friday, May 26th, but no one paid any attention. On that day, a group of women from Roxbury, members of Mothers for Adequate Welfare, staged a sit-in at the 515 Blue Hill Ave Division of the Boston Welfare Department. They were protesting present practices of the Welfare Department. It was a silent, frustrating session. The women got no satisfaction. Even the news media ignored the event. Their next try occurred this Thursday. The vehicle was the same, a silent sit-in. Thirty women stationed themselves inside the building. They stayed overnight without incident. They charged that their checks were cut off without notification or investigation, that social workers were hostile to them, and that police pushed them around at the welfare offices. The Grove Hall office was chosen because it processed more welfare recipients than any other office in the city, and it had a reputation as being especially dehumanizing. Waiting women were forced to sit for hours in two small, straight-back chairs while an armed police officer stood guard over them. When they were finally called forward to see a caseworker, they were interviewed in tiny cubicles without walls, and they had to answer personal questions, even questions about their dating and sex lives, right in front of everyone. After their unsuccessful demonstrations in favor of basic human decency on May 26th, about 30 members of MAW returned to the Grove Hall office on the morning of June 1st with a list of seven demands that they hoped to draw attention to. 1. An affidavit system under which a woman could qualify for benefits pending investigation of her claim. 2. No denial of aid based on hearsay evidence or before the charges against a recipient are proved. Remember, before this, a recipient could lose her benefits if a disgruntled neighbor alleged that she had a boyfriend. Number three, removal of police from all welfare offices. Number four, day-long availability of welfare workers to talk with all recipients in the Grove Hall office. Number five, a policy of politeness and respect to recipients by welfare workers who would be empowered to make important decisions quickly with no red tape. Number six, welfare budget increases to an adequate level so that we won't need any special grants for every little thing. And number seven, establishment in every welfare office of a committee with at least half the membership made up of welfare recipients, which could overrule decisions made by social workers in urgent cases instead of through the present system of appeals. The women sat on the floor all day on June 1st while employees tried to work around them and city officials tried their best to ignore them. The office was on the first floor facing the street, so women would sometimes lean out to talk to people who were walking by. And after a while, they taped up a sign on the wall outside saying, Help us kick off Welfare Month and kick off this lousy system. 
When the business day drew to a close, the women handcuffed themselves to radiators and pipes and spent the night in the office, under a police guard. The next day was Friday, and news of the protest had begun to circulate through Boston. Supporters of Ma gathered on the sidewalk outside the office, mostly African-Americans, but also some white college kids from the various campus organizing groups. Reporters came to cover the sit-in for newspapers and TV. As the workday drew to a close, protesters demanded to speak with the city welfare director, Daniel Cronin. When he arrived on scene, Cronin asked to come inside to talk, but the protesters said that they would only meet with him through the window, where the supporters and the press could hear what was being said. When he declined, the mothers chained the doors shut, trapping the welfare department workers who were trying to shut down the office for the weekend inside. This is the point at which accounts of the protest diverge, depending on whose version the reporter believed. Police Commissioner Edmund McNamara claimed that his men rushed the building in response to a woman inside asking for help because she thought she was having a heart attack. Black leaders claimed that after the protesters refused to leave, police broke through the exterior glass doors without any further provocation. Deputy Police Superintendent Joseph Saya wrote in an official police report that after he ordered officers to clear the office, As the detail was carrying out my order, they were punched, kicked, bitten, and thrown to the floor. On the other hand, a Mothers for Adequate Welfare member would tell reporters that as soon as the police were inside the office and out of sight of the press, they were ordered, Now beat them. Let them have it. Moments later, a woman appeared at the window where protesters had hoped to speak with Director Cronin. She screamed, They're beating our people in the head with sticks. At that, a group of supporters outside rushed toward the front door just as the police inside were dragging bloodied maw protesters out. Former Representative Rushing, who would be clubbed by police and twice arrested that night, later said that he saw the police dragging their prisoners across broken glass to get them out the doors. The two groups crashed into each other, and then the police pushed protesters back to the other side of Blue Hill Ave. Hundreds of protesters threw rocks and bottles at the police between further attempts to free the protesters. The Globe described repeated clashes between the groups. For 20 minutes at a time, there would be a standoff between the mob and a line of a hundred or so uniformed patrolmen defending the welfare building from siege. Then, as if on signal, 70 or 80 rioters would surge forward to clash with the police, who came out to meet them, their clubs raised menacingly. The police would fan out, heads down and helmets forward, to control the mob. Each clash yielded a new candidate or two for a ride in the waiting wagon. Sirens wailed as additional officers were called in from all over the city, and leaders of prominent civil rights organizations like Operation Exodus gathered to try to defuse the tension, but nothing worked. Some of the leaders, including Rushing and NAACP Branch Vice Chairman Thomas Atkins, were even arrested. At about 8.30 p.m., a large formation of police officers massed to clear the street in front of the welfare office finally allowing the office workers, who'd been sheltering inside, to get into waiting police cruisers and leave. Clearing the immediate area had the unintended consequence of spreading the crowd of 700 to 1,000 protesters north and south along Blue Hill Ave. This is probably the moment when the protest became an uncontrollable riot. Someone in the crowd began smashing windows, and a shoe store, a furniture store, and a liquor store were soon looted. By midnight, Cohen's Furniture Mart was on fire, and the Ashmont Discount Store soon followed. 
Along with their batons, the formations of police who continued to attempt to clear the streets were armed with shotguns and 30 caliber carbines with fixed bayonets. Reports of rooftop snipers, real or imagined, prompted police to fire hundreds of rounds in the dark on Intervale Street and at nearby rooftops in a seemingly indiscriminate manner. That night, about 45 people were injured and 30 were arrested. The Frank White Schoolboy Stadium in Franklin Park was pressed into service as a staging area and detention center. After rocks were thrown at them as they responded to the burning stores along Blue Hill Ave, police officers were assigned to accompany every fire truck. Before the night was over, 1,700 police would participate in the response. Before the night was over, 15 blocks along Blue Hill Avenue looked like a war zone. The morning headlines said that the neighborhood was now peaceful, but that would turn out to be overly optimistic. The neighborhood was relatively calm during the daylight hours on Saturday, though heavily policed, but tensions rose after dark. A couple of hundred police officers in riot gear were on patrol near the welfare office. More officers, armed with rifles, watched over Blue Hill Avenue from the rooftops above. While large numbers of residents were out on Blue Hill Avenue, which had been close to traffic, violent behavior was scarce. Windows were broken in stores on Warren Street. A few bricks and bottles were thrown at cars. There were scattered reports of looting. One man suffered a skull fracture after being hit with a ball bat, and another was stabbed in the chest. The Associated Press would report that about eight more people were injured that night. Then, at 10.28 p.m., Boston Fire's Ladder 4 responded to what turned out to be a false alarm on Warren Street. When they arrived, ten shots rang out in the darkness, and Fire Lieutenant Joseph Donovan was hit in the wrist. The next day's Globe gave this account. He underwent emergency surgery at 10.45 p.m. Doctors at City Hospital said Donovan's right hand was clenched when he was shot. The bullet entered his hand through his wrist and took the tips off of three of his fingers. His name was placed on the danger list. Donovan is 39. The shots apparently came from a rooftop about 200 yards away. Police dogs and floodlights were rushed to the scene. Police were unable to find the shooters. A district chief said, When we got off the fire truck, we were bombarded with bottles and I heard about 10 shots. Then I saw Joe go down. The fears that had prompted police to open fire on a residential block the night before had become reality. On Sunday, June 4th, Mayor Collins made a surprise announcement of an eight-member commission that would study the city's welfare procedures and deliver a report within three weeks. Unquestionably, improvements can be made in our welfare system on the local, state, and national levels, and I shall ask the panel to study this. This news was coupled with a continued call for a return to law and order. All adults in Boston, whether on welfare or not, have an obligation to set an example to the young people who this weekend indulged in rock-throwing, arson, and looting. Today, anyone who improperly restricts the freedom of others in such a way as to require force to break that restraint must anticipate the possibility that serious disorders, personal injury, and property damage to innocent parties may result, whether intended or not. Disorderly protests will not be tolerated in Boston. That night, 11 more people were injured and 11 more arrests were made. There were a few reports of looting and a few bricks and bottles got thrown at police patrols and random cars. Traffic on Blue Hill Avenue was shut down again. A homemade bomb went off on Blue Hill Ave, injuring one person. 
At 10.30, police responded to shots fired from a third-floor window at the corner of Quincy Street. Then soon after, the same thing happened at Faston Street. The media characterized these as sniper attacks, but that seems to be a bit of a stretch. This time, the police did not return fire, but one of the suspects was captured. A 2017 article from Timeline credits this change to another community leader, saying, Behind the scenes, Kenneth Guskett, president of the Boston branch of the NAACP, got a meeting with the mayor. In it, he'd pressed the city to agree to the most urgent police relations issues, including restrictions on gun usage and name-calling by on-duty officers. The mayor agreed. Now a sense of calm finally began returning to Grove Hall for real. Even as shots rang out on Sunday night, the mayor hunkered down with community leaders to work out a plan to de-escalate tension in Roxbury. All told, about 100 people had been injured and 60 had been arrested over the three days of rage. At 8.15 on Monday morning, the large numbers of uniformed officers in riot gear withdrew from the Grove Hall Welfare Office. The office opened for normal business while the department announced that it would meet with representatives from MAW, open additional neighborhood offices in order to improve conditions at the Grove Hall office, and consider their demands. Meanwhile, city crews began cleaning up the streets around Grove Hall, and residents and business owners began surveying the extensive damage. Adjusted for inflation, the riots had caused over $4 million in damage to an already impoverished neighborhood. The scars inflicted on Grove Hall during the 1967 riot and a smaller one following Martin Luther King's murder the following April would remain visible for decades. Store owners struggled to reopen after insurance companies refused to safeguard businesses in a supposedly dangerous area. Many families lacked the funds to repair or rebuild damaged homes. In another interview with Katrina Morse of the Grove Hall Memory Project, Arthur Sutton remembers how, after the 1967 riot, there was an exodus from the neighborhood. The thing that happened on Blue Hill Avenue was after the riots. That's what killed me. It really, uh, it was over. And um, it was actually a, a flight to get out. People just left their businesses. Hutchins Chevrolet. You ever hear them? I think they was in the high pocket, way down the other end. They used to be in Grove Hall. They were the biggest, brand new cars. And you go way in the back. That whole place is full. You see the used cars, you can go buy one. Big time. They were big. They were there. And the bowling alley was up there. Big restaurant. Right where the post office is, right in that area. Mayor Kevin White announced a revitalization plan in 1977, but it never went into effect. In 1983, Governor Dukakis announced a plan for economic development in the area, but by 1987, there were 117 boarded-up buildings and 360 vacant lots in the area that had been damaged in the riot 20 years earlier. The area wouldn't recover in a meaningful way until the administration of Mayor Tom Menino. During the decade from 1993 to 2003, about $90 million of public and private investment went into housing and retail in Grove Hall. Meanwhile. Mothers for Adequate Welfare saw some positive changes in welfare policy, and they may have pulled off regime change at City Hall. While Ma and the Collins administration were still arguing over their demands in the immediate wake of the riot, Collins agreed to meet with the group on Tuesday, June 6th. Ma didn't show up, and 20 minutes later, Collins called a hasty press conference 
and announced that he would not seek re-election in the fall. This cleared the way for a bloody election season, with a three-way race between Ed Logue, an old guard advocate of disruptive urban renewal, Louise Day Hicks, the angry populist who vowed to fight school desegregation at all costs, and moderate Kevin White. Four days after announcing that he wouldn't run again, Mayor Collins announced the members of his panel to study the welfare system. MA leader Catherine Moore was included in the group. With the winds of change blowing in Boston, Jim Frable describes how the new mayor-elect managed to push welfare reform legislation through the statehouse. Even before taking office, Kevin White was able to get rid of the last headache that his predecessor had faced. Thanks to Ma's efforts, a bill had been filed in the Massachusetts legislature that called for the state to take over responsibility for administering the welfare system. For various reasons, the bill was stuck in committee. But Kevin White found a way to get it unstuck. He discovered that legally, he could continue as Massachusetts Secretary of State even while serving as mayor, and threatened to do that if the welfare bill wasn't passed. Since politics is, more than anything, a game of musical chairs, and since White's exit from his state job would allow a number of members of the House of Representatives to move up in the ranks, the legislature, Barney Frank recalled, was persuaded to see the wisdom of the takeover. Vrabel continues, Ma continued its old organizing. It had taken years of work, a riot, some political machinations, and a dust-up with outside organizers. But this small group of women had succeeded in creating a brand new welfare system. And if it didn't work, Doris Bland would be there to fix it. She was one of the dozen people named to the new board that would implement it. It took almost 30 more years to heal the physical scars left in the Grove Hall neighborhood. And it wasn't until the 50th anniversary of the sit-in in 2017 that historically white publications like the Boston Globe and the Harvard Crimson reevaluated their past coverage. Both publications came to the conclusion that the actions of the police had escalated violence and likely caused the ensuing riot. Fifty years on, they finally seemed to agree with the headline that Bay State banner editor Melvin Miller ran on the front page as soon as the arrests took place. To learn more about the welfare riots, or the police riots, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com slash 140. We'll have a whole slew of newspaper articles from the Boston Globe and the Harvard Crimson, a 2017 PhD thesis about racial politics in Boston that discusses the riots, and primary source interviews collected by the Grove Hall Memory Project. We'll link to some 50-year retrospectives about the riots, as well as a handful of other articles we used in preparing the show. We'll also link to a number of news photos from Getty Images and a couple of video clips from television news with borderline racist commentary from the hosts. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and a People's History of the New Boston, this week's Boston Book Club pick. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email podcast at hubhistory.com. You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we'd love to play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, or go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on the site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's one of the best ways to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time to talk about Boston's Cessna Strafer. Cessna Strafer.